Welcome to Prima's 2021 podcast series. My name is Shonda Ragland. I am the Director of Education at Prima. On this Prima podcast, Chris Mandel will discuss workers' compensation in 2030. Chris is the founder, president, and managing consultant for Excellence in Risk Management, LLC. We will also be joined by Prima's Education Coordinator, Taekwon Gilbert. Taekwon will moderate the discussion. Enjoy the podcast. Thank you for joining us today, Chris. You're welcome. Now, with the publication of Cedric Institute's first book on the future of workers' compensation, tell me a little bit more about the author and the Cedric Institute. Yeah, sure. So uh, the Cedric Institute is, you know, obviously connected to Cedric uh, Claims Management Services. The CEO stood it up a few years ago as a, as a thought leadership platform and a problem-solving platform for the industry. And so we do a lot of uh, thought leadership promotion development research, and in this case, publish a particular book, as I'm sure we may uh, do in the future. So in this case, one of our senior fellows, in fact, the first senior fellow of the Cedric Institute, Dr. Richard Victor, who was engaged in early 2016 in that capacity, was given a grant to do a number of things. And one of them was to write a book to his liking. And in this case, uh, we're now talking today about what the result of that has been. And we just published this a few weeks ago, and it is called Scenarios for the 2030s, Threats and Opportunities for the Workers' Comp Systems. And um, that book is, while nearly 300 pages long and replete with research, in-depth research and statistics to back up uh, Dr. Victor's conclusions, findings, and predictions for the future, is something that a lot of people who care a lot about the workers' compensation systems and processes and how injured workers are treated and and, uh, compensated and ultimately, you know, return to work, hopefully, is going to be affected by some trends and issues that are beginning to emerge both domestically and, frankly, globally. Can you provide some background on Dr. Victor's book on the future of workers' compensation? Yeah. So, like I say, we we left it up to... uh, Dr. Victor, who just for the record is the founder and former CEO for over 30 years of the Workers' Comp Research Institute up in uh, Massachusetts. He's been retired for a couple of years. That's why uh, we picked him up as a senior fellow. But obviously his forte, his expertise is Workers' Comp, even though his original background was as an economics uh, specialist as well as a researcher at the RAND Corporation. So again, we left it up to him to you know, determine what he wanted to write about. And thankfully, he's done a great work on his thoughts about the workers' comp systems, how they're working, what's affecting them, what will affect them going forward, and where they might be in another 10 years. And that's part of what I want to talk about today. Okay, so what are the key themes addressed in the book? Well, this book is broken down into three or rather four major parts. The first part deals with demographic forces that he believes will challenge the workers' comp systems, which, as you know, are state-based today. Every state has its own workers' compensation statute. And some of those demographic forces include what's happening to uh, the workforce as it ages, you know, affected by such things as how the baby boomer generation is rapidly racing towards retirement. Um, Some emerging labor shortage issues is another demographic force that's going to affect workers' comp. Automation and the effect automation has on jobs, particularly loss of jobs, as uh, robots, artificial intelligence, machine learning, and other 
advanced techniques are having and will have effects on uh, the workforce of the future. And then the last of the demographic forces in that first section are about restrictive immigration policies having an effect on that labor availability and shortage. The second part of the book is about case shifting and looks into the question of whether or not there's any material case shifting on going on by workers on the one hand and providers on the other. And, you know, the whole idea of case shifting revolves around finding more lucrative places, basically, to get claims paid and managed or handled. So think about how some people who might have a normal claim against an employer's benefit program, subject to deductibles and co-insurance, co-pays and the like, if they could make a case for it, might find that, you know, putting that same claim into a workers' comp system ostensibly connected to an on-the-job injury, which is, of course, is what the core of comp is about, or comp that is, could, in effect, cost them less. And so he looks into, in the second part, in depth, the whole issue of the extent to which cost shifting may be going on now and, you know, what may happen with it over the next few years. The third part is about the Social Security disability insurance situation, its financial stress, and those many people that are concerned about its solvency. You probably know, and the listeners have heard, that the federal government has more than $100 trillion in liability obligations, part of which, a big part of which, is the Social Security obligations, both from a pension standpoint and a disability standpoint. So the disability portion, again, known as SSDI, has some connection to workplace injury in the sense of, for example, the cost shifting, case shifting I just mentioned. So he looks into that in depth and asks uh, similar questions about that, as well as you know, what legislators and other policymakers are doing about the financial uh, stability uh, and future of Social Security in all its forms. The last section has to do with the changed environment for work comp and work comp reform, which he believes could limit its future success. And that relates to things like the implications for um, the 50 to $100 trillion plus in governmental liabilities and obligations that somebody's going to have to deal with in the future and likely will be emerging generations. The intensification of cost pressures on U.S. employers from the globalization of the economy and other uh, paradigm shifts that may occur in the 2030s or in the next 10 years in particular. The last section, by the way, uh, deals with a whole set of strategic questions that he poses about the system and its stakeholders that they should be asking and, and looking for answers to try and get ahead of some of these issues. What are the most significant findings and conclusions that will affect the workers' compensation exposure? Well, it's kind of a mixed bag, but I'll just note some things that people will care about most. One is the notion that, based on his research and his predictions, work comp costs could triple from 2016 levels through 2030 with what he would say would be no real material change in the benefits that workers would be receiving in the different systems. So, you know, that obviously would be a huge issue for employers from a cost of risk management standpoint. Another has to do with both employers and workers advocates finding that state-based systems end up seriously out of balance. And that goes back to the issue of benefits versus costs as well as just the general administrative efficiency of the systems and whether they're meeting, you know, their purpose, mission, and goals as intended by the legislators. And then uh, regulatory and legislative reform in general 
is a system challenge that he believes because of its size and other complicating factors, including some of the demographic shifts that I mentioned, could get into and remain badly out of balance going forward. Another several pieces of prediction that come out of this book include an increase in claim frequency by roughly 23% in that same 13, 14-year period through 2030, which in effect would be reversing a 100-year trend in declining frequency rates. So that's a pretty big deal. As a part of that, a lengthening of the duration of disability by as much as 21% and an associated uh, 7% increase in the frequency of indemnity claims all within that same period. The other interesting data point is his prediction that there could also be an 8.5% increase in the average payment per workers' comp claim at the end of that same period in 2030. In addition, restrictive immigration policies and practices, if they continue as they are and they may even worsen, suggest that a 42% increase in cost by 2030 could occur as a result of worst-case labor shortages driven by those immigration policies. Again, these are his these are his opinions. From the standpoint of healthcare reform, which of course has some relationship to work comp in, in several ways, but because of the acceleration of high deductible programs in that non-occupational space, more insured worker uh, situations shifting soft tissue injury cases to work comp because of the way it's viewed as more of a kind of free or lower cost alternative to them is going to have some outgrowth of healthcare reform and, and its related issues. It's important as well to understand some other things that he finds in his research, which includes the emergence of widespread fiscal distress, potentially at all levels of government, as the millennial voters come of age politically. Again, with such a large set of liabilities by the government, he opines that if you fully amortize the hundred plus trillion dollars in obligations over 50 years, which is effectively two generations, the annual payments for these obligations could be as much as $5.1 trillion, which if that were the case would require a 120% increase in federal, state, local taxes and fees, which of course uh, would be rather severe to say the least. And absent that, and maybe in addition to that, he believes we could be facing severe limitations on governmental programs and the ability of governments to maintain those current programs because of those uh, financial problems. Another issue has to do with the millennials and others coming up behind the baby boomers that'll face the prospects of dealing with these cost and financial issues and really, in his view, have only two choices. They're either going to have to raise taxes materially or they're going to have to take material and potentially massive cuts to government programs. You know, and the fact is that, I should say, as he opines, as globalization increases in the future, competitive pressures on U.S. businesses will grow. In the midst of all that, and I don't mean this to sound too draconian, but the truth is that if many of these things emerge, they're going to be coupled with what he would say are sclerotic legislative and regulatory processes that would hamper the ability to reform systems. He also says there will be an interplay of forces that reshapes domestic policy issues within that same time frame. And the four forces that he talks about that stand out that I've already alluded to in part are, number one, massive unfunded government liabilities coming due, 
millennial and post-millennial voters who are replacing baby boomers and others growing in their voting demographic and strength and bringing different values and norms to you know, the political landscape as well as the economic landscape. U.S. employers facing even more intense competition from competitors, particularly from Africa and Asia, and as a result, greater pressure on employers to reduce costs in as many ways as possible. And fourthly, the potential for stalemate and ineffective government solutions to become common as a result of the rise of ideology-based public policy processes in many capitals and the potential demise of pragmatic, compromise-based solutions. So, you know, these forces, as they converge, he believes, could then produce three themes that will dominate public debate. First is intergenerational conflict, where effectively millennials seek to reclaim their financial futures as they face dramatic higher taxes. Two, eliminating unnecessary costs that we've talked about already. And three, embracing private sector solutions because of the possibility that they've lost faith in government to solve problems and, you know, have taken or will take it into their own hands to address those issues that we've uh, talked about already. So I know that's a long answer to a short question, but I've just given you the heart of the book and the heart of its findings that I think would be of interest to uh, many, many stakeholders in the, in the risk management and insurance community that we both support at the Surgic Institute and at Prima. Now, with that said, what should risk managers do as a result of these findings? Well, that's a good question, and um, I'm glad you asked. So, you know, on first blush, a lot of people would say, well, you're talking about systemic issues, even global issues that some would say aren't controllable from their points of view, their vantage point. And that may be true in many cases. And it gets into this age-old argument of, you know, what do you, do you just ignore it because you think you can't control it and you think it's a, an effect outside of your control? And I think, so I begin my answer by saying, it's that old argument between loss prevention, which may not be possible here as much as, let's call it loss control, you know, managing costs after losses have occurred, or even more so, what I call building organizational resilience. And organizational resilience would say, as business continuity professionals would agree, that you can build strength into your organizations to buffet these kinds of forces, at least to some degree, even if you can't control them. You can maybe have some impact on their effect on you and your organization. So Beyond getting that strategic focus on building resilience and preparing for possible impacts, the same way you would prepare for, uh, say, a natural disaster that you knew could occur, I would say that I have four recommendations for practitioners, whether they're risk managers, human resource managers, uh, safety people, uh, or other leaders that care about the workplace injury issues and injured workers in particular. So the first would be get engaged in employee injury administration. Show you care. You know, at Sedgwick, we talk about caring counts, and we really do believe it does. But I think for those that think, you know, this is just a cost of doing business, there's reason to take it more seriously. There's reason to focus on the second recommendation, which is to ensure that you have as many of the best, best practices in the workers' comp field in place to mitigate costs, even have potentially some effect on frequency, but primarily to mitigate costs and to deal with our primary goal in the work comp world, which is to get injured workers back to work fully recovered as soon as possible, and frankly, at least cost. 
So whether it's medical management or return to work strategy or fraud control, those are just three examples of areas in which you want to look at what are the best practices and make sure you've got as many of them in place as you can or as makes sense for your workplace. The third recommendation would be related to what I mentioned up front, and that would be to employ and practice empathy and compassion. I really believe and we believe as an organization that if you show empathy and compassion or if you show that caring counts, then people really see that you do care and they respond differently in the high-stress situation that is on-the-job injury and the aftermath of that, which is the workers' comp uh, claim administration process. You know, one reason people get a little stressed about it, if not a lot, is because it is foreign to most people. Most people don't incur, you know, a workplace injury, and if they do, it might be a once-in-a-lifetime event. So it's incumbent upon all stakeholders to make them feel like, you know, they understand what's going on, they know what will happen to them, that people do care about their uh, recovery and the implications of the injury for their own financial uh, soundness, the implications on their families, their jobs, et cetera, et cetera. So practicing these principles, I think, is, is paramount almost in any scenario. And then lastly, I would say support reform interests. Get involved in the reform interest through your governmental affairs strategy, influence and bring influence to your governmental affairs people about the need to spend time looking at workers' comp reform, depending on what states you operate in, and the extent of dysfunction in your states. Some is more than others. And of course, some other states operate quite well. But I think um, not every employer gives this priority. And I think if any or most of these predictions are likely to come true, there's every reason to kind of raise higher in the priority list the whole issue of paying attention to reform opportunities in, in the work comp statutory world and lobbying for things that you think are um, going to be to your benefit as an organization and for the benefit of your people. Before we wrap it up, did you have any closing remarks you'd like to make? Yeah, I just appreciate the opportunity to share a little bit about um, you know what Dr. Victor has come up with. I just want to reinforce the idea that this is not just a speculation. This is based on a lot of statistical evidence and deep research that he's been engaged in for the better part of two years. It is a lengthy uh, book, and um, even if you know you decide you don't have time to read it all, it's worth taking a look at. And in that regard, I would just let everybody know that this book is free to anybody that wants it, and you can get a copy of it by going to cedricinstitute.com and just fill out a brief form, and we will send you the e-copy of that book. Further, if you want a hard copy, as long as they last, we could get you that as well. And in that case, I would just request you send an email to judy.molnar, M-O-L-N-A-R, at cedric.com, and um, you should be able to get your hands on a hard copy if you prefer that to a soft copy. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, or feedback on the book, feel free to contact me at chris.mandel at cedricinstitute.com. So again, thanks to Prima for uh, allowing me to talk a little bit about Dr. Victor's book. Again, the effort of two years of of hard work and uh, one that we would like to see as many people as have interest in this area take a look at and begin considering as they kind of develop and refine their workplace injury strategies going forward. We have reached the end of our podcast. 
Thanks to our speaker and all of our listeners. Please visit the Prima website to hear other Prima podcasts, view upcoming Prima webinars, read Prima blogs, and learn about other Prima educational resources. Be sure to check us out on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and our very own Prima Talk. Have an amazing day.